0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Charlie Merrill. He's a physiotherapist based in Boulder, Colorado, using mind body strategies to treat acute and chronic pain symptoms. In addition to working with clients, He teaches clinicians and also works with Lynn Health to help normalize, scale, and increase access to treatment strategies based on the idea that emotions manifest in physical symptoms. Welcome.
0: Hi, Charlie. um, Welcome back to the podcast. Um, Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, Charlie Merle is a physical therapist. Um, We've known each other off and on for years. I think we're both sort of in the same learning environment where if you look back a year compared to two years compared to five years our, our concepts keep changing dramatically but charlie's physical therapist he has now recognized which is a big deal that as a orthopedic surgeon i was sent physical therapy a patient physical therapy and was always frustrated when the patient didn't come back cured that was your job to cure my patients right charlie <laughs> and to took me a long time in my own personal experience realized that chronic pain is a complicated issue physical therapy is part of it but it doesn't always solve the problem well, I was talking about Charlie and his world. I think physical therapy is one of the mainstays of treating pain in general, especially chronic pain. And the physical therapy has been adopted. It's really quite at least 10 years ahead of the medical profession. And um, so, Charlie, welcome to the show. And what we did in the first time, we talked about a program called Lynn Health, uh, L-Y-N Health, um, at com, right, Charlie? Who's at the... Um, yeah.
2: First of all, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. you and I could talk about this all day, so I never feel like we have quite enough time. But um, it's Lyn is the name of the digital health platform. So thanks for clarifying that.
0: Yeah. So we you know, we talked about that the first time. It's, it's so what he's recognized, which is which every clinician that understands how to treat chronic pain recognizes is a multi um, many variables in the system that all have to be addressed to actually solve the problem. So Charlie has also come around to that mode, has his own way of doing it. He's developed this platform called Lynn Health. And so I'm excited about that because the I like to just ask you, Charlie, we talk about his transition in understanding this issue, how patient outcomes are so much better. But you also have this group called, is it EIM Energy in Motion? Is that what it's called? in Bolt, is it out of Boulder where you got where that program is?
2: Um, evidence in motion is a bigger sort of national continuing education group. I'm not really associated with EIM, but they've done a great job of starting to bring some of these ideas into physical therapy practice, especially sort of the basic pain neuroscience education, um, which a lot of physical therapists have, have gotten really into in the last, you know, five or 10 years.
0: Um, the reason I bring that up is for one reason is that my point being the physical therapy world has been quite a ways ahead of the medical world in understanding the pain neuroscience. Because Laura Mosley, again, world famous as a physical therapist. And so physical therapists have become very aware of the interaction between the, you know, the body and the brain, because they're basically one unit. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see this come into the physical therapy world at the level that it has. And Charlie is now leading that charge in his own way, in a big way with the development of Lynn health and what he does. But I do want to go into the physical therapy part of this because again, chronic pain is complicated, it's multiple factors affecting it. But if you're in pain and not using your tissues, they start to hurt. So, when we talk about the neurological basis of pain, um, I want us to not forget that there is a soft tissue component to it that does make a big difference. But I want to make one comment before I, I know this is your podcast, Charlotte. I will let you talk.
2: <laughs> <laughs> your podcast.
0: No, well, yeah, but you're, I, I want to learn from you here. But when I was in practice, uh, and we've seen people get better with chronic pain, a lot of times you send a chronic person in chronic pain to a physical therapist and they come back just totally flared up and i know the therapists are eager to heal et cetera. but i learned eventually i would do sort of the calming down process for about six to 12 weeks first then we start physical therapy it was a huge jump forward is is that is that observation something that you resonate with
2: yeah for sure yeah i think you know that ideally that's our role right to be able to start from that place of of calming down the nervous system and finding that sweet spot of where the person's nervous system can engage with movement or engage with hands-on work, or even engage with, you know, dealing with some of the psychological and social challenges that the person has. Um, I think our role is because we have more time with people, right. And we really get to know people is to collaborate with them and work with them to decide like what's going to be a good starting point so that we don't flare you up.
0: So, but the problem is, I don't know what percent of physical therapists understand what you understand, but a, a high percent of physical therapists and physicians, of course, don't understand the magnification of pain that can occur when you, when your nervous system is fired up. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll, I'll just say like, I see two or three clients a month that come in with like 10 out of 10 back pain. Like, you know, these people, right? They they collapse to the ground doing something benign, and sometimes they get driven to your office because they can hardly move and they're just in lockdown spasm. Right. Um, that's real pain. I mean, that's about as bad as pain gets. Right. And you and I know that those flare-ups are almost never dangerous. They're never uh-huh. caused by a structural problem. They're caused by significant life stress or change or some type of, you know, danger, massive danger alarm response to the nervous system. And of course, then once you're in that pain, you have so much fear about your body that whatever triggered the pain, danger alarm to begin with is now your least of your worries.
0: Um, So that's a magic in what you do is that when you do recognize there's a central nervous system component, where not only the brain itself is sensitized, the whole body is sensitized, so then let's say i come to you with 10 years of back pain i honestly have ten, trigger points that you can't touch the surgeon said well there's nothing wrong with you and so it doesn't make anybody very happy and so but when you touch the tissues they hurt so what's going on i mean so yeah i agree with you I mean, and i don't like here's where the word that pain is always real because it sort of implies that maybe i think that the pain is not real but you and i both know very clearly you touch a point that hurts even though it's, quote, not nothing wrong, it's a painful spot to touch. Uh-huh. And then it's sensitized. Okay, so I've had 10 years of back pain, coming here with you, I have about 10 trigger points on my lower back. How do you approach me? What do you do?
2: Yeah, and you know, you keep in mind, I went through a lot of training to be able to trigger point, dry needle trigger points. And I saw the science around how we relate to trigger points change over the course of time. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I can walk away from an exam with all kinds of physical findings. I can muscles, I can strength test muscles and find weakness. I can find, you know, muscle spasm or guarding or trigger points in the soft tissue um, in the back or in the glutes. I can look at range of motion and say, ah, this doesn't quite look like what I would expect for range of motion. Or there's a difference on the two sides between your neural tension sensitivity And I might walk away with a whole laundry list of those findings. My experience is um, when those things add up to a pattern that makes sense, then I start to think maybe we should be treating some of these things, especially in the absence of any other sort of psychosocial variables. Or let's say there was a real injury and they're still within that window of healing for that injury. I'm going to take those things more seriously. If I come away with sort of a loose list of findings that don't really add up to anything. They're just sort of like, you know, I call them normative. Um, I start to think of those more as, as adaptive change and deconditioning, And I think of them more as the result of pain. The result of this person having had 10 years of back pain has led to them moving a little differently and avoiding things and being a little scared to do things. And of course, when you've been in back pain for 10 years, you're generally more stressed and anxious than if you hadn't had back pain. So you're going to have more protection of that body part anyway. At a baseline level, you're going to have more muscle tension there. So rather than pathologizing those things and medicalizing them, I just do my best to normalize them. And and then if I decide they're worth, they're still worth treating, let's say I want to do some manual therapy, and I want to give people a push in the right direction. Or they're, they they have an expectation or belief that manual therapy is going to help them. I don't want to tell them it's not, but I'll make sure that they understand that my intention in doing those things, in needling a trigger point or in manipulating a joint, is to really have a conversation with the nervous system, have a conversation with the brain, give a new input of safety, hopefully try to interrupt this old neural pathway that's not that's not helpful anymore. Let's let's give a new input to the nervous system um, to sort of interrupt that faulty predictive coding that the brain's doing, predicting danger. And if I can do that with manual therapy, great. The problem is, as you know, that can lead to dependency. It can often in the short term help, in the long term create more fear, because I'm sending the wrong message sometimes. I'm, Even even though I do my best to educate people and I say, this is why I'm doing this, and this is my intention, you're not broken, your body's okay, this is just my way of trying to improve your safety, it still sometimes sends the wrong message that you're treating the body, so there must be something wrong with the body. So I have to really be careful about how I navigate those things.
0: Well, you know, we have this scientific work group that you're well aware of, and we sort of found out that it's sort of all the same thing, that you're that the brain is actually part of the immune system is has an inflammatory component to it. And then the, the nerve, the tissue actually makes up the fascia of the muscles is not so different than the nerve tissue. It's sort of all the same set a
2: Big sensory organ, right? It's one big sensory organ. Right.
0: And so that's my question that I am asking you is that, okay, you have a sensitized nervous system. You've been in pain for many years. Your brain has memorized the pain, but do you, th- but my sense, again, I'm not a physical therapist, is that it's critical to calm down the nervous system no matter what. But after you get the nervous system calmed down, do you need to actually work those trigger points or do those trigger points become desensitized after you calm down the brain?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I, I think that a sequence is really common where I'll work with more of the psychosocial factors and working to bring down the fear. Mm-hmm. and. Most of the time when I do that, you see the muscles are less tense. Like the objective findings that I had on my first session have really changed by session two or three because I've calmed down the nervous system so much. So I don't need to treat them anymore.
0: Right. And I'm guessing based on your years of doing traditional physical therapy, not recognizing the synthesized nervous system was pretty counterproductive.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah it was an overreaction is that what you mean it was like well, a... I mean,
0: so so somebody comes into the sensitized nervous system the other's trigger point you're pushing the trigger points trying to get this in to calm down but what you're doing you're actually firing more impulses to the brain and actually making them more anxious and again i'll say this a couple times that fear of pain just the fear anxiety is an inflammatory response so fear of the pain actually increases nerve conduction increases inflammation and people actually physically hurt more so just calming down fear of anything, but including the pain itself is really critical. The part that I also come across as a surgeon, which was a big part of my practice, and people come in and just terrified because the surgeon said you had degenerative disc disease. Mm-hmm. And even early on, before I knew much about chronic pain, I'm going, wait a second. Okay. So we know the disc has been documented to not be a source of pain through so no disc degeneration, bulging disc, arthritis, none of those things cause pain. Plus from a physical therapy standpoint, you're pushing on a point on the muscle and the disc is like two inches deeper under the skin. So, even from a logical standpoint, it never made any sense to me.
2: No, no. I, I, I spend a lot of time in the process of evaluating busting myths. And oh, I, I spend a lot of time busting myths.
0: I busting spend
2: a lot myths. Of time right. Like a combination of very directly and confidently sharing with people the science that you and i know is so important right so i sometimes i call it belligerent confidence so you know they can sort of take that and run with it and, and a con- combined also with this more motivational interviewing style where you're asking them questions about how they learn that and why they believe that and you know having more of a conversation about it so i'm not just telling them all the time Right. Different people respond differently to this because some people are really they hold on to those things because they've heard them from five physicians and seven physical therapists. And I'm the first one telling them something different. And so why are they going to believe me? They just met me, you know, so that that part alone can be really challenging. And to come back to what you said about treatment, there there are a lot of people who flare up when you treat them. Right. Sometimes, Sometimes I say because the brain knows that's not what they need. Sometimes it's because it's too much input to the nervous system. And then there's a whole other group of people that actually does kind of well with that because they believe that that's what they need or they believe that this is going to give them relief because I've done a good job of building my relationship with them, building trust, reducing fear, and they believe that my skills are, are good. And so they actually have relief, which is sometimes fun, but that's only short, that's only short term. That tends right. to be really
0: temporary so going back to being a myth buster I mean I'll give you one example of a guy who's 45 years old literally a billionaire in a major city and he'd been told by a surgeon that he had the spine of an 80 year old and all he had was eight discs that were degenerated just narrowed flattened a little bit Thoracolumbar Junction not very bad at all long story short just by understanding that this is a normally aged spine even though he was sort of young I mean half of people at age 45 have degenerated disc. Within six weeks, after nine solid years, I was seeing the best medical care in the world. He was pain-free. He's been pain-free for five years now. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. But I also think that's getting a little bit worse right now, because I feel that surgeons right now are telling patients that you have degenerative disease, you have a spine that looks terrible, you need surgery. Are you? Do you have an impression about how that energy in your field is going as far as people being told they have these 80 year old spines and they're not going to ever play golf again or whatever?
2: Uh, I was just making a list earlier for a course that I'm building for athletes about the things that clinicians say. And it's, it's pretty disturbing. and Sometimes even makes me angry. Just even what you just shared. Right. I mean, I've had, I've had people tell me the craziest things that their PT or their chiropractor or their physician has told them. So I don't think it's going all that well yet. I think there's a growing group of clinicians that's doing a really good job of reducing fear, but I think even when I'm on social media and I'm looking at the mainstream narrative about pain in the spine, the overwhelming, you know, the overwhelming bias is towards these old messages that are not helpful that increase fear.
1: I'm sorry. I'm
0: just sad. to reinforce what we're trying to say today is that fear of pain makes the pain worse. You walk into a doctor's office who's telling you that a normally degenerated disc is pathological. That makes the fear worse. It makes the pain worse. It's, I mean, I just think that healthcare providers these days, a lot of the time are simply making the situation much worse with the stories they tell them. I think is a huge yeah. problem. Yeah, I agree. Um, I heard, had a distant relative of mine talk, call me last night. He was 56 years old, extremely avid golfer. And he, I can't tell his pathology. I haven't seen his scans yet. I'm doing this as a favor. And bottom line, he did a four-minute visit with the orthopedic surgeon. And the guy said, you're never gonna play golf again. I'm going, excuse me, <laughs> and going, and so he's terrified. I mean, he's, his life is over. And so I'm guessing that she spent a lot of time I'm noticing your question about athletes that most of the time, even with surgery, with good solid rehab, posture and biomechanics, you can get most people back to essentially hundred percent activity. It's a big part of what you do.
2: Yeah. And then there's no question about that. And, And it's much harder when people have received these sticky messages from other clinicians that something else is true, that they won't play golf, that their joint looks terrible, that they're bone on bone, that they're, you know, their, their tissue feels like jerky or, you know, the things that people that clinicians say sometimes blows my mind, but the more people have heard that the harder it is to, to unpack and untangle those things and, and help people understand that that maybe isn't true.
0: Well, I mean, the problem that we both have is that, okay, this doctor said you have a spinal 80 year old and David Hanscom is saying, well, it's a normal looking spine. Who do you believe? right it's a big problem I mean you have you have you're both professionals and why am I more valid than the guy said you had a terrible spine and mm-hmm. so it's really a, a huge problem for the patient about you know who exactly do you believe as far as what you can and can't do or what you should do so I think this mixed messages thing is a huge issue particularly in spine surgery where we actually end up doing fusions on normally aging spines which um do you do I'm assuming you see a fair amount of that in your world also fill back surgery
2: um, yeah, I just actually saw a client today who I met after she had a fusion that got infected and then she had a revision and then she had to be on antibiotics. And all along, all along her process, she was seeing physical therapy and doing all the right things, but her pain continued to get worse till she was disabled, essentially disabled. And here we are a few years later and I still see her because now we're working on this sort of life growth you know, part of the process where she's unpacked so many of the psychosocial factors that she realized played into her nervous system being so sensitive, and now we work on a lot of that. And we do that usually while we go to the park or we do something that's movement-oriented. So we're playing and we're 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 moving in joyful ways and we're having a lot of fun while we talk about the stress going on in her life. Um, but she's come from absolutely one extreme to the other, and she's my favorite case of what's possible when people show up ready to do the work and curious and ready to let go of some of these these old stories. And they often have a lot of anger about the things that they've heard from other clinicians once they start to believe what we're sharing. Then you have to process the anger about that, uh, their experience in the medical system.
0: Right. No, and I have a major problem because these people are rightfully Legitimately angry at the spine surgeon who said they were going to cure them, right? And I don't blame them. I mean, they were basically again. The I'm not even saying the spine surgeons were lying. I mean, we're trained not that well either. And I I can't be too critical because I was one of those guys. I was in Seattle when when we were doing nine times the rate of spine fusions for back pain as anybody else in the country, and I didn't know the success rate was only twenty five percent. I thought it was ninety percent. And so as, as soon as, I found the, as soon as I found out the data was 20% success rate for a spine fusion for back pain, I stopped. But I didn't know what to do. I had no alternatives at that point. But uh, yeah, no, I don't blame the patients for being angry at the surgeon who basically, you know, promised them something they couldn't deliver on. And then, as you well know, the surgeon said, well, I did the surgery, surgery went well, you're still in pain, I did my job, have a good life.
2: Right.
0: Right? I mean, it's, it, so we don't... Oh any long-term obligation to follow patients up long-term. And so we do what we do. We get paid the same, whether you do well or not, by the way, which I think is a little bit tragic also. So yeah, we don't guarantee our results. We do an operation that has no data to support it. You not only are not better; a lot of times you're a lot worse. And then we just, we dump you.
2: Yeah. And, And of course, you know, I'm faced with this a lot because I see people oftentimes after they've had surgery or multiple surgeries, And it doesn't help to go back and talk about regret. No, you shouldn't have done that. I always come back to this idea that, you know, surgeons are really good at what they do. When surgeons do a surgery, if they're, you know, the the outcomes from an objective perspective are pretty good. Like the fusion in this client's case took, because clearly she recovered. The surgeon did a great job. So I don't want people to spend a lot of time regretting that they had the surgery. Although sometimes I can feel that way, but I wish they, I wish I met them sooner. I wish I right. could have avoided that, right? right? But but I always start those people from the point of you're healed. The surgeon did a great job. The reason you're in pain is not because of the surgery anymore. And we need right. to sort of be able to move past that. Let's process the anger about what what you heard and what the surgeon said, and you got dumped and the surgeon said they couldn't do anything for you. That's really hard, right? Right. but we need to sort of work to start to leave that stuff behind so we can move forward in a new way.
0: So you brought up a super important point, which I think we'll finish up our podcast with this is that my observation in my own process, but with, I swear to God, one of my patients without exception, it always comes, the healing always, always comes around when you let go of the anger every time. I mean, you can get better without it, but until people actually can process the anger, they don't heal. And because the anger represents a very fired up nervous system and you just can't, your, your brain and body would not let it go until you let go of the anger. Mm -hmm. So that being said, the more legitimate the anger, of course, the harder it is to let go. And you're entrapped in pain. That's a very legitimate problem. So you have a catch 22, which is a big one. And so, um, yeah, so I'm really excited about your approach. You look at the physical part of it, look at the, um, mental part of it combining the two getting people moving and as you know it's incredibly rewarding getting people to heal that had no hope and so yeah i'm excited about your work and so just remind us again about um lynn health and what you're doing with that and 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 how to access that
2: sure yeah um i'm a consultant with lynn health it's lynn.health and i'm not it's not my not my business solely, uh, I, I get to work with an amazing team of people that's building this platform to help support people in chronic pain to go down this new road that you and I are talking about. And it ends up being a place where people can go and tell their story and and um, get clarity on how they need to move forward with the help of a coach that's meeting with them asynchronously, but also um, synchronously to guide them through the process. And again, to just collaborate um, on what that process might look like for any individual, and um, it's it, the outcomes have been amazing, and and the people we get to work with are just incredible, um, and yeah, it's it's the in my mind going to be the future of how we scale this work to right. make it accessible and affordable to people. Yeah.
0: Well, I've been watching Charlie's work from a distance for a long time, so I'm excited to be able to talk to him in some detail about it. But yeah, he knows what's going on. He knows how to do it. And I'm really excited that you're leveraging it into this new platform. So anyway, Charlie, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed it. And uh, we'll stay in touch.
2: Yeah, it's great to be on. I really appreciate talking with you. Every time you write about anger in your blog, I make sure to read it because you and I both know how important that is. I, I do so write
0: about the world bit. <laughs> I like
2: it? it. I appreciate your work. And I appreciate it. I like to share stories with my clients about my anger. As you probably do, just to normalize it. And I think the more we normalize all of this, the better.
0: Yeah. We should have another podcast about anger because I mean, I'd say, look, it's, you gotta, anger is fine. I mean, it's a survival reaction. You, if you fight anger, you're going to become more angry. So just be angry. That's fine not a problem.
2: Yeah. Let, let's do it to be continued. Cause I, I like to think of anger as the clear mirror. I had this client the other day that we were talking about anger, not about the pain, but about something else in, in, in his life. And he, we came out of it with this really clear uh, um, path of what he needed to do with his business partner going forward. And so by tapping in and listening to the anger, it gave him clarity about what he needed to do, which was really right. cool to see. So right. how, how do you talk about anger? I like
0: anger. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll we'll, uh, talk to you. Thank, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thanks, David.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Charlie Merrill, for being on the show today and for sharing his insights into chronic pain and his innovative treatment approach. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www backincontrol.com
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.